Israel is poised to launch a ground invasion of Gaza some two weeks after the October 7th massacre conducted by Hamas fighters in Israel. We're recording this special episode in our series, Illuminating Aspects of the Region and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. And we're going to focus today on Iran and its role. So the three things we want to talk about today are Iran's role in the region and how it's been aggressive and expansionist, the ideological source of Iran's character and its actions, and then how it's involved and how it's centrally involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the region more broadly. And to start with, I wanted to throw this to you, Nikos, because one of the things we talked about as we were preparing for this is you having experienced some puzzlement about why the Institute took a position after 9-11 that Iran was the issue and the, the main target. So let me hear from you what your thoughts were at the time. Yeah, so the, the way I think about this series is trying to figure out questions that I myself had when I tried to make sense of the Middle East or of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. So I remember when I started consuming objectivist content, how surprised I was to see many objectivist intellectuals claiming that after 9-11, the main target, the main goal should have been Iran. And this made no sense to me because I thought Iran is a Shiite country. We know that the perpetrators of 9-11, almost everyone either of the hijackers or of the organizers were all Sunnis, were Sunni Muslims. And of course, we know that the Sunnis are in eternal war with the Shiites. We also know that particularly when it came, for example, to the invasion of Afghanistan, Iran was actually eager to provide some security information to the United States in terms of how to beat the Taliban. So the way I view it is in terms of what I would then understood as realpolitik, how could Iran be on the main target after 9-11, whereas Iran had nothing to do with the attack itself? And actually, if we see the 9-11 commission, it verified that there can be no links drawn between Iran and 9-11. So I guess this is a question also in the minds of many people. Many people might think, even with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, why are you so obsessed with Iran? Iran is like two hours flight away from Israel in the biggest wars of Israel against the Arabs, the current Iranian regime was not even there. So why all this obsession with Iran? And this is what we're trying to clarify today. Let me say something about the wider issue of Iran's role in the Middle East. And then maybe Alan, you can take the issue of its, its specific role in the conflict with Israel and the support of the Palestinians, including Hamas. The kinds of considerations, Nikos, you brought up are details, and it's important to not get lost in details. Part of what philosophy teaches you is to get a big picture view. And part of what Ayn Rand's philosophy teaches you is to take seriously ideas and philosophic ideas. The reason that the Iranian revolution is the most significant event in the Middle East in the last 50 plus years is what it meant and the inspiration that that revolution had for people across the Middle East. What that revolution meant is we're going to replace our infatuation with socialism, communism, 
as a kind of ideology in the Middle East, and we're going to have religious totalitarianism. We're going to have Islam take complete political control. So far from a separation of church and state, the church or the mosque is going to rule the state. And the revolution succeeded. And part of the revolution and what was so significant about it is when the American embassy was seized in Tehran, what it told people and what it sort of showcased is look at the power that we have if we embrace Islam as a totalitarian ideology that should wield power. And look what it's able to do when it does wield power. And I was I was nine years old, I think, when the the, the embassy was seized. And it, they were held hostage, the people in the embassy, for 444 days. I can remember, it's when I first started following the news, I can remember day after day after day on the American news, stories about the hostages and what it conveyed was America's impotence that, look, we can't get the hostages freed. And they even sent a military operation, the helicopters crashed and so on. It failed. And so for for internally in America, it's like, why are we not able to do anything? Why can't we get the hostages freed? But in the Middle East, the perspective is, look how powerful we are. We can bring the mighty Satan, America, to its knees um, if we embrace Islam. And that is, that's an inspiration throughout the region. And what you see in the region then is a growing and growing embrace of Islam as a crusading political totarian ideology. And the specifics of Sunni versus Shiite that the Taliban and the uh, Iranian regime might have theological differences and so on, that's a detail. The crucial thing is they all think we can become powerful if we embrace Islam and, and embrace it in a totalitarian way. And that's why you saw the rise of Al-Qaeda Al and all kinds of Hamas, and so, all these groups. And it, 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 unless you put an end to um, the in, Iranian inspiration and a whole regime that is dedicated to this ideology and putting it into practice for over 50 years, you're never going to break the spirit of these people warring against America and against the West. And let me so tie in, it to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Nikos. It, it, because I yes, Elan, you can. Yeah. I, I think it's important because it it's an, an amplification of the same kind of issue. So the decades before the Iranian Revolution, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is defined and shaped by the ideologies that were dominant, and they were the kinds that Ankar mentioned. They were nationalism, socialism, various kinds of. Um, leftist influenced ideas and the countries that were sponsoring the Palestinian cause influenced it in those directions. And important to see is that the Palestinian cause was a kind of badge of honor. The more a country associated itself with this as the champion of these victims, the more its prestige uh, was recognized. And so there, there was both a reciprocal relationship between a country's attempt to, to prove its bona fides as a vanguard for its ideologies, for its nationalist, socialist uh, agenda, and the fact that it used this conflict 
to uh, fight against what it saw as foreign influences, foreign powers, and in particular, the ideology that Israel embodies in some degree, which is a free society. So that's part of what you see before the Iranian Revolution. What happens after the Iranian Revolution is that the whole conflict changes drastically in its ideological direction. It becomes Islamized and the Hamas movement and Islamic Jihad come to the fore in the early 1980s and they're directly inspired by Iran. Islam, Palestinian Islamic Jihad was born by some, was created by someone who was initially a nationalist who saw that ideology fail and embraced Khomeini's ideas, the Iranian leader Ayatollah Khomeini. And the, the Muslim Brotherhood chapter in the Palestinian territories spun off Hamas because they realized after they saw Khomeini's triumph, this is the path. What we need to do is not just incremental religious cultural change. We need the time for jihad is sooner than we thought. And that's when you see the beginnings of Hamas, which is the Islamist resistance movement. That's what its acronym stands for. So that's the, the, the ideological shift in, in the region. And Iran is behind it both as an inspiration ideologically and then materially it supports these groups. And the final thing to say about Iran's role in the conflict is it's similar to what we saw previously, which is associating yourself with the Palestinian cause is a source of prestige and moral standing. So this is part of what it's playing to a certain audiences to say, we're the vanguard, we're the ones who are really helping to liberate Palestine, in quotes, liberate Palestine. And the idea there, it's bound up with religious uh, connotations. The whole idea that you have to erase Israel off the map is because it's an infidel power, not just that it's a Western power, but now it's specifically infidel. And we need to bring back Muslim control over Muslim land that the prophet once conquered. That's the, the so you have to understand in those ideological terms. So this is to underline Ankar's point, you, to understand what's going on in the region and Iran's role in particular, why it's so central, it's the, the, the issue. You have to pay attention to the ideas that these regimes and movements are espousing. And when it comes to Iran, we are talking about a country that is very, very ideological. And many people today are very cynical about the, the role of ideas. They claim, well, all the countries basically want uh, security or something like that. But with Iran, its ideology, it's engraved in the way the state operates. And the best example of this is the Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC. The Revolutionary Guards are actually the one pillar of power in Iran. The, the spiritual pillar is the religious authorities, but the muscle, the, the guns, is the Revolutionary Guards. And the name is actually very accurate. The Revolutionary Guards are revolutionary in two ways. One way is proceeding with an constant revolution inwards, inside Iran, meaning trying to, to destroy any resistance. But also, it's a continuous revolution outwards looking. So there is this tenet in Islam which says that uh, we have to be, quote, altruistic with the struggle of other Muslims everywhere in the world. And the Revolutionary Guards completely embrace this idea. So for the Iranian, both for the clerics and for the Revolutionary Guards, borders, state borders, is something which is a technicality. 
and artificiality. They see their mission going way beyond Iran. So Iran is not a regime that if you leave it alone, I mean, it's a, one might say, look, it's a bad regime, but let's leave it alone and then it will leave us alone. But no, expansionism is institutional in Iran. I'll just mention this. The Revolutionary Guards have one, one of their branches is the Quds Force. Quds, in, uh, both in uh, Farsi and in Arabic, is the name for Jerusalem. And the Quds Force literally means the force that will go and liberate Jerusalem. So the anti-Israeli sentiment is institutional in Iran. Even when they fought their war with Iraq, the way they viewed the war, when after the first three years, they managed to defend the attack of the Iraqi forces, the forces of Saddam Hussein, and then they went to a counter-offense. And the way they saw it is that this is a counter-offense that will eventually lead us to Jerusalem. So they see the countries the, and regimes like Iraq just as an inconvenience standing in the way between what, they, what is their actual cause, their actual aim, which is the liberation of Jerusalem. And actually, even if you see the logo of the Revolutionary Guards, it's very interesting. It's a rifle and you see above the rifle, as you see there, there's a globe. And so there are three things that stand out. There are like 10 different symbols, but three things stand out. The rifle, which means constant struggle, constant revolution. Below the rifle, you view, you see the book. This is, of course, the Quran. On top of the rifle, there's a verse of the Quran which says something, gather all your forces and let's, let's attack the enemies of Islam. And for me, the most important thing, the globe. The, this circle which shows that our goal is to expand the revolution. So expansionism, aggressiveness is institutional in Iran, is, is, an exist, is, is, is a very essential thing in how we can understand the Iranian regime. This is why I think Elan and Onkar, that though the, the quote realists who think, let's give something to Iran and they're going to stay quiet, I think they're very, very mistaken. They're not paying attention actually to what has been happening and what I think Iran should be taken seriously in what they say. I just want to add to that because the, the kind of thing you're describing, a name for it is, a, is imperialism, not in the, the connotations that it's had in the 20th century, but it is a kind of vision where our ideas are going to dominate and we're going to create an empire. And the root of this is in the ideas that Iranian regime holds. And it's the idea that if, if the law of Aleph, the, the true faith is true, it can't be limited to the borders of Iran. That doesn't make sense. It's, it, it's a global universal claim and therefore it has to be spread and brought to everyone, everywhere. It has global ambitions because it sees its ideology as something that everyone must bow to and that's that's it's important to connect that to the ideas so when we think about what iran is doing in the middle east and this is another dimension of why it's so central so i've talked a, a little about its relationship to the israeli-palestinian conflict but iran also has influence in lebanon not only with respect to the israeli-palestinian conflict but it's trying it it, it 
it helped support Hezbollah in Lebanon with the idea originally of turning Lebanon into another kind of Iranian regime, bringing Islam into that society and dominating. It didn't work, but it created a lot of chaos. And Iran is also trying to influence other regimes around the Middle East. It has huge impact on Iraq, particularly after the US invasion. And that was by design. The idea was that this is another area where Iran could exert its influence. So it's, it's not accidental that it's trying to expand its influence and it's not limited to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So that's the reason we're talking about it today. And I would say the other thing, you, you mentioned the kind of realist perspective. One way to think about realism in this context is it's an, an attempt to understand countries and their relationships to one another in defiance of the role of ideas. And, and purposely ejecting moral ideas and philosophic ideas. And I think that's like trying to cross the road with the blindfold on and earplugs in. It's ridiculous. It's not at all the way you can understand things. And it's, it's also a path for really bad decisions. And if you think about the kinds of decisions America has made, such as supporting the jihadists when the Soviet Union invaded uh, Afghanistan a, a long time ago, that blew up in our faces precisely because it was a kind of realist calculation where, well, these people can't be that bad if they're against our enemy and we'll support them for a while. And then guess what happens? You take, don't take seriously their ideas and it comes back to haunt you. And one more thing right. about uh, Hezbollah. And Onkar, I'll get to you in, in a second. Yeah, sure. So these days we hear that Hezbollah is a liberation force for Lebanon, they fought the Israelis. This is a misunderstanding of what Hezbollah is. Hezbollah is literally a copycat of the Revolutionary Guards. The name Hezbollah was given by no other than Khomeini himself, the supreme leader of Iran. So Khomeini is literally the godfather of Hezbollah. And we have another graph with the with the flag of Hezbollah behind, beside the, the flag of the Revolutionary Guards. And you see, they have the same theme. The theme is the book, the rifle, and the globe, not the map of Lebanon, the world. So Hezbollah is part of this expansionist plan of Iran. And again, it doesn't want to protect Lebanon from uh, Israel or whatever they say. They are also an imperialist for with a real term of the with the real meaning of the term, which means expansionist, aggressive, and a very, very bad, uh, very, very bad neighbor for Israel. Onkar, you were saying something. Yes, the, about the so-called realist, which I agree with Alon's description of them. I mean, to encapsulate it, the so-called realists are detached from reality. And part of the detachment is that they can't wrap their heads around a crusading religion. So we're talking about imperialism, they're expansive, they're aggressive, as though, oh, we've never seen this before in history, that a religion crusading and wanting to take more and more people, convert them. So we've seen this in history. Um, I mean, for centuries, we've seen this. And you have to take seriously that a religious mentality can and often does think like this. And then if you add that what you're dealing with is a religion that, uh, in Islam, uh, the way that it's held now by these fundamentalists and totalitarians, 
It's a religion that has not been tempered by the Enlightenment. So what happened in the West is you had an Enlightenment, a rise of reason, science, a fighting against the dominance of religion in Western society. The Western societies did not get rid of religion, but the religious people were on the defensive. And the idea that you're going to have a whole state dedicated and built around a religion, that, thanks to the Enlightenment and the separation of church and state, that became a non-starter politically. It is not a non-starter in the Islamic and world and in the Middle Eastern world, precisely because these are people who are pre-Enlightenment. They don't, they don't have any kind of perspective of what a true secular free state looks like. And so they just swing from, well, we're going to have a dictatorship that's nationalistic or communistic to no, we're going to have a religious dictatorship. That seems to be the route to power. That's what the Iranian revolution proves. And that's what we're going to um, crusade for. And it goes without uh, saying that when we say these people, we mean actually the regime and those who support it. Because particularly in the case of Iran, there is the hopeful uh, message that there are many people who actually oppose the regime and they oppose it from a very, very, uh, let's say, pro-liberalism or something that looks like pro-liberal point of view. And what a shame that the West time and again have uh, let these people down. One last question, because this is the podcast series where we ask the difficult questions. So many people, when they hear the term Iran and Iran being a threat or uh, America, United States need to do something about Iran, they always say whatever Iran does is blowback. Blowback from what? From the fact that in 1953, the United States helped uh, bring into power a thuggish regime, the regime of uh, Shah Pehlavi, and they helped, the United States helped, to bring down a president who, yes, maybe he was a bit of a nationalist, a bit of a leftist, but he was a popular prime minister, and this was prime, uh, prime minister Mo Mossadegh. So what is your answer to this point, to the blowback theory about Iran hating the United States because we imposed a horrible regime to them, which lasted uh, almost for two decades and more than two decades? I'll say something brief on this. I, I don't think you solve the problem of a, a, a poorly thought out American policy to the extent America was involved. And I don't think it's as well established as people think. I don't think you, you address that by creating a totalitarian Islamic regime. That is not the appropriate response to we were cheated out of a better leader. And you, you, what you do is you embrace someone who dominates you and, and crushes your people to the point where you, it, people literally are trying to escape from Iran over mountains at night and they're standing in the streets because their women are forced to wear headscarves and they don't want to do that. That does not, it is not a rational response. So I don't accept, number one, I don't accept the, that that's a genuine motivation behind the Islamic revolution as much as there was problems with American policy towards Iran. And I certainly don't think that creating a dictatorship or a religious theocracy, such as we've seen in the last 40 plus years, I don't think that's a solution to whatever uh, problem you think you had uh, with in 53, which is a lot of people not alive yet, right? Right. Yeah. Bonkar, so any, blowback, any comment on blowback? Yeah. 
blowback runs together two issues that need to be distinguished. Part of what Alon was arguing, you can put like this, that you can't see this as it's justice, that uh, um, uh, US foreign policy has been irrational in many ways post-World War II, and it's certainly been irrational in the Middle East. And blowback in the sense that causality is, if you act irrationally, bad things are gonna happen, including bad things are gonna happen to you, but more broadly, bad things are gonna happen in the Middle East to the people in the Middle East, including the people who are more on the side of freedom. If you don't support the regimes and the causes that are actually pro-freedom, you're betraying them and you're betraying your own interests. And in that sense, yeah, you get blowback. You bear the consequences of your irrationality. That, to say that is not to say that the people who are per, per, perpetrating even more irrationality and injustice are justified in doing so. And that's the sense that, yeah, if you what you're setting up is a religious dictatorship, there is no justification for that regardless of what American foreign policy was. But the, so the fact is, and this is part of what we've said about Iran, and this is part of what Ayn Rand said about Iran, that if, because she was still alive in the Iranian revolution, and her view was, if we didn't march in the first few days when the embassy was seized, there's nothing we can do now. And it's going to take us decades to live this down. That is, we're going to bear the consequences of this irrational decision. And we have, we've seen the rise of um, Iran and more broadly of a Islamic religious totalitarian mentality that was emboldened by the Iranian revolution. And there's all kinds of things in our foreign policy that we placate dictators in Saudi Arabia. We don't support Israel, the only truly country on the side of freedom in the Middle East. We don't support it in the way that we should be supporting it. And all that kind of irrationality and injustice in America's foreign policy, yeah, it has detrimental consequences, including detrimental to us. It's part of why we had 9-11. I'll just say one other thing in, in, in support of that. I, I think it has to be said that the hallmark of American policy in the Middle East is chaos. It's just, it's completely irrational. They're just a minority of cases where we actually did something rational and in our interest, but I think those were accidental and, and uh, unfortunately rare. The other theme here, so I don't think the blowback is the point to, the way it's presented typically is um, we brought this on ourselves. So it's sort of the running together as Ankar put it. I think that the point that's missed is that because America's policy has not been self-interested, has has not truly understood what is in our interest and how to uh, recognize the virtue of certain countries and the vice of other countries, the concept, one consequence which needs to be shouted from the rooftops is that America has sold out the best people in the Middle East. The people who are actually on the side of freedom in Israel, not all of them, but the ones who are on the side of the people on the side of freedom among the Palestinians, in Iran, especially in Iran, particularly in the last year, but also for 40 plus years and numerous occasions when they tried to overthrow their leadership. People in Iraq who are for freedom, people everywhere in the, in the region who truly want a better life and who understand to some degree that what that means is a society that's free. 
all of those people have a genuine grievance against America because America has not lived up to its ideal and it's certainly not pursued its own interest in giving them the moral support that they deserve. And I think that's the tragedy. It's not the blowback is the way it's understood conventionally, particularly on the left, but that issue that we haven't truly upheld our own ideal and given the moral support to those who deserve it. And I want to end with this. Onkar mentioned Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand had this idea that there's this big conflict, let's say, it's either the morality of life or the morality of death. So listen to a quote by a former commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and judge for yourself whether Iran is the morality of life or in the morality of death. So he's addressing uh, other uh, soldiers and he says, quote, we have two paths ahead of us. The first is martyrdom and departing for heaven. The second is victory over the enemies of Islam and establishing a government of Islamic justice. Therefore, we are not afraid of anything. End of quote. So what he's basically saying, if we die, we win. If we don't die and win, again, we win. So the dilemma is not victory or death. Their motto is death is a victory in itself. And they have shown this time and again, they've shown this in the war against Iraq, where they were sending the human wave attacks. They were sending people to their death. For what? For the glory of dying on the way to Kerbala, which, is, uh, this, which was the, the holy town of Shiites. So this is a regime for which the morality of death is its trademark and it proudly declares to the world that ours is the morality of death. Thank you very much for watching. Follow all the episodes in this series shedding light to the Middle East conflict. Thank you very much. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.